Well, it's great to see all of you here for worship this morning. And um, we began this series last week. We started by looking at what is the impact that can come from having a convinced life, from living a life of convictions. And, and this is a, a critical um, it's a critical uh, concept that really you, you run into as you read through the Bible. You see people, wow, they're really convinced about these things if they would live in this way. And so we all build our lives on a set of beliefs. And some of those beliefs are mainly up in our, up in our heads. And that's, all, that's where they stay. Other things, though, we really believe we believe them, you know, at the core of who we are. And so somehow they have moved from our head into our heart. These things are our convictions. And these are the issues that we would sacrifice for, that we would give money for, give time for. Our convictions are what really drives and motivates our lives. And so last week we started by illustrating this idea of living a life of convictions, with the story of William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce, he was a man who, he, uh, this is uh, you know, a book, Amazing Grace, about his life. He was a man who lived out his convictions. He lived out what he was convinced of, and it made a huge impact his life. Um, he helped to abolish the, the British slave trade, and because of his work and because of his convictions that he kept on um, pursuing, over 800,000 British slaves were set free. That's amazing. He had, he had partners, he had people that labored with him, but um, he was the one that really moved this um, effort forward. And now there's still, if you think about the issue, there's still much work to be done with slavery. There's still problems with slavery um, in our world. There's still issues um, and there's still problems with um, tension, there's the need for racial reconciliation, but pivotal changes in our world grew out of his efforts. And it's people like Wilberforce who are really willing to sacrifice and face opposition and just keep pressing on that, that brings um, real change. And, and what he did is, is really not even something new to him. Um, if you If you get into history and go further back, you'll find other characters who stood up for justice. You get, you start reading the scripture, you see God is for that. God, God wants, you know, people to be treated um, as humans and, and he wants us to proclaim justice. And so as you read through the scripture early on, you start seeing, wow, there's mistreatment of people in the Bible. And so we need to help people experience the freedom that they can have. And so but if you read through history, you all of a sudden realize that a lot of the ideas that we hear today that may seem new and that we can maybe jump on the bandwagon of, uh, those are probably not new. <laughs> a lot of the ideas that, that, that are in our culture and, and that maybe we are fired up about, um, if you trace things back through history, it's probably not brand new. And so um, one of the things I want to do with this series is... is is look at some key people in history, see the difference that they made, and talk about what, what led to their convictions. How do our beliefs travel from our head to our heart? What does that path look like? What's the process? Uh, today I want to introduce you to another William. Uh, this time his name is William Tyndale. And another man 
who lived out his convictions. And so this is the book cover of a biography that I own of his. And um, there's another um, very well-written biography that is, if you're interested in Tyndale, you can come and talk to me about. But Tyndale had a conviction that ordinary people should have access and should be able to understand the Scripture in their own language. This was his conviction. At that point, when he lived, there were only partial translations of the Bible into English. And so he was convinced that people needed to be able to to read the Scripture and hear it in their own language. This was his conviction. And at that time, the Scripture was read in Latin. And so when people would attend the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Scriptures would be read in Latin and only understood and explained by the priests. And so just think of how challenging it would be to try to engage with God personally, but not be able to understand the language of the Bible. And so someone's reading something that's a foreign language to you, and you're relying on their explaining it, and really interpretation of it. And so how, how would you really grow with, in, that, in that way? You could, but it would be very, very challenging. So Tyndale's efforts to translate the Bible into English created tremendous backlash from the church. Um, At that point, the English uh, Bibles that were circulating were translated from Latin, not from the original Greek and Hebrew. And so Tyndale studied, um, he was actually a linguist, and he studied, he knew eight different languages. That's pretty amazing. He knew eight languages. And so he went and he studied the original languages languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, and and he began to pour over it and translate from those rather than from Latin. And I want to show you a clip from a, about a 27-year-old movie um, on Tyndale. Well, I'm going to show you the clip in a few minutes. Um, but the movie is called God's Outlaw. It's an old clip, so it's poor quality. But before we watch the clip, I want to give you a little bit of context about who this man is and what's really going on in that um, historical time period. Um, so he's an Englishman, and so the king at this point is Henry VIII. And I don't know if you remember much about Henry VIII. He was a uh, he thought very highly of himself, and his he was very um, vain. Um, he was the king of England, and England was Roman Catholic at this time when when Henry was uh, leading the country. And so King Henry's advisors were leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, but there was a great deal of tension between. Henry and the Roman Catholic Church because of this. Henry was married six times, okay? Here's a picture of his six wives, and not all at the same time because he was a Roman Catholic. Um, that would not have been possible. And so but he was married six times, and he wanted, the reason he was married so many times because he wanted a male heir to take on his throne. And so he wanted to continue on his dynasty, but the problem was that his wives were not producing male offspring, and so he would swap them out. And, um, and the, the church would not get behind that. Can you imagine? The church wasn't about to just stamp these, you know, these new weddings and these new marriages. They would not annul the marriages. And so because the church wasn't cooperating and most of his advisors were Roman Catholic leaders, there was a, there was a reason um, that... Change was going to come in England <laughs> for his own political gain. And so he was already evaluating whether or not he wanted the, the country to really remain Roman Catholic. And so, but this is part of what's going on in this time period. 
Um, also, Tyndale, William Tyndale, he lived during the beginning of the Reformation period. Of the, of the, the Reformation of the Catholic Church began in that time. It was sweeping across Europe. And so in Germany, Switzerland, Hungary, Scotland, there was just um, countries in Europe where people were beginning to have conversations and debates and people were writing about some of the problems and the issues that they saw within the Roman Catholic Church. And here's a picture of Martin Luther. He's one of the key reformers of that time period. And here in this picture, he's nailing his 95 thesis to the, the door of a castle church in, in Germany. And he's, he's nailing this um, document. And on this document, he's expressing his desire to really have a conversation He's not trying to create and split the church. What he's really doing, if you study history, he's wanting to just have dialogue in order to, hey, let's take a look at some of these practices that we have as the church because he had some serious concerns with some of the practices. And so he's listed this out on his, on his document. He's nailed it to the door, and now this all of a sudden sparks um, reformation among Europe or throughout Europe. Some of the issues that he had was uh, the authority of the pope. How much power did the Pope really have? The view of the church was that, and the church leaders especially, was that what the Pope said was like what God said. So if the, if the Pope interpreted something and, and declared something, then that was like God speaking. And so the Pope's words were, um, you know, you think, oh, how much does the Scripture um, matter? How much does the Pope's word matter? Well, what was really happening was that the Pope's word were actually elevated above even the Scripture. And so um, you're going to see that come out in the video clip I'm going to show you. But then the priests of the church were... Now, this was the church at that time. There was no other church. There wasn't the, the Christian churches and the Catholic churches and these other... This was the church. And these were some of the issues that were going on in the church. Uh, but the priests were abusing their position. They were selling forgiveness. That's a problem. You know, let's say you mess up. The priest had the power to control your view of if you were really right with God. And so um, what the priests were doing, and this is part of the major problem that Martin Luther was writing against, was the priests were um, creating fundraising campaigns in order to build things, build buildings, things of that nature. And so the more money that people would give, then um, the more that could be built. And so... Um, the priests were selling what was called indulgences, which were forgiveness of people's sins. That was, and so the more I did good works, the more I gave to the church, the more that I could be right with God in my mind. That's at least what I thought. And since the priest controlled the scriptures and the church controlled the scriptures, I had no other way. I would have had no other way to know that I could just relate to God without anyone mediating. No middleman. I could just relate to God. Well, that was a problem. So some of the reformers, they saw this needs to change. Another issue was that faith alone in those days, what was taught was that faith alone could not make a person right with God. It wasn't just faith. A person needed faith plus good works. And so, and then the church was benefiting from the good works that people were doing. And so that, again, huge problem. So back to Tyndale. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I am a little dry. Thank you. That's good. 
try not to knock that over. That might happen. Back to Tyndale. So Tyndale, this is the man we're going to talk about. Now, that's what's going on in the time period. Tyndale was doing, um, doing what he did right as these other events had just been happening, happening within a, a, you know, a decade before. And so he's also hearing about the changes in Germany and parts of Europe. There, people are smuggling documents into England, and other people are reading about the, the Reformation and writings of Martin Luther and others. And so um, his issue is let's get, now Tyndale again, let's get the Bible in the language of the people so the people can relate to God without the middleman. That was a radical thought. And <clears throat> this, again, for the church was a problem because they did not want to give the common people access to the Scripture because it took the control, which sadly was being misused, it took the control out of the hands of the church and gave people the ability to just relate to God, get into the Word for themselves. So this whole interaction that we're about to watch um, shows when William Tyndale really becomes an outlaw as he opposes a priest of the church. He opposes a priest of the church, and he refers to this priest and these two priests as doctors um, because of their degrees in divinity. Um, but he begins to take a stand against some of the practices and the traditions of the church in this clip. So let's, let's roll this clip, and then we're going to talk about it. You pray to the saints. You make images of them. You light candles to them. If these images can see and hear, perhaps they hunger also. Uh, if they hunger, why do you not make their bellies hollow and put food and drink inside? Jest is ill-becoming in one so young. His mind is full of invention. And profanity. Would you make a mockery of sacred images? No more would I than did the prophet Isaiah. He wrote of a man who cut down a tree to light a fire to bake some bread. And when he was warmed and filled, he took the remains of that wood and carved an image. Then he fell down before it and worshipped it, saying, You are my God, deliver me. Did Isaiah laugh when he wrote that? Did Isaiah write that? You are a priest, tutored in the classics in Cambridge University. If you, learned as we suppose you are, schooled in Greek and Latin and divinity, practiced in the arts of debate and contention, if you cannot understand Isaiah, or the scriptures you so imprudently expound, how then can the ignorant laity, the blacksmith, the weaver, the ploughboy, those who count upon their fingers and look to us to guide them? Uh, one moment, Doctor. As our Lord said, Hotan de Elthe Echinos top pneumates ale. Ah, spare us, spare us. I acknowledge your learning. Must you parade it before us? I thought perhaps translation might cause offence. Your very presence at this table causes offence, which we endure for the sake of our host and our gracious hostess. If our Lord spoke, would it not be better to hear it in English? Would that all England could hear it in English. Damn your impertinence! What did he say? When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. And that, young Tyndale, is what the spirit does. Through the church. But the church has so many persuasions. One man follows Don Scotius, another Thomas Aquinas, another Bonadventure. If all these learned men are in contradiction one with each other, how can we know right from wrong but by God's word? God's word says, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Give the scriptures to ignorant men, and they'll soon be tearing out their own eyes. Hither and yon will be a nation of blind men. 
Without God's word, we are a nation of blind men. But without the help of doctors, God's word is too hard to understand. And that is to measure the yardstick by the cloth. There are as many doctors as there are pieces of cloth, but only one yardstick of scripture. By what should we measure that? By the Pope. The Pope whom God has set on earth in direct succession from the Apostle Peter. The Pope through whom God administers truth and justice. The Pope! The Pope! And what if the Pope is at variance with God's laws? Then it were better to do without God's laws than the Pope's. Well, young sir, what do you say to that? I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, I will see to it that a ploughboy shall know more of the scriptures than you do. Now, major change came in this hundred-year period and to the church. And Reformation actually created um, some healthy discussion and debate, which actually brought about change in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, from what was going on in those days. But there was a split at that point. Um, Protestants split. There was the Protestant, this Protestant Reformation caused people to, to part ways from the Roman Catholic Church. And, um, but these are his famous words. I want you to read this. These are the words he says there at the end. I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. He's saying this to the priest. That's his desire. I, I want... The average person, someone who's driving the plow forward in the fields, I want that person to know what the Scripture actually says. He was convinced that people should hear from God and know him personally. Eventually it cost him his life. Our convictions, again, we said this last week, are those things that we're willing to pay a high price for. Uh, Tyndale, he was forced to leave England because as soon as he started, you know, boldly proclaiming what he was doing and having conversations like this, he was forced to leave the country because the church leaders at this point were um, taking the heretics, as they would call Tyndale and others, they would take the heretics and they'd burn them at the stake unless they would recant from what they believed. And so um, if he stayed in England, he would have been killed by the church. And so he was on the run. He left for over a decade. Eventually he was able to produce... Really, the first English Bible drawn directly from Hebrew and Greek texts. And this was an amazing translation of the Bible. Um, here's a picture of the, the Tyndale Bible. It's an amazing translation. You read through Tyndale's work, and the majority of, of what we read in, in the most literal versions of the English Bible um, are Tyndale's work still. A lot of his translation have... have you know, have hung in there for 500, almost 500 years. And so many of the things that we read in like an English, English Standard Version Bible, Revised Standard Version Bible, New American Standard Version Bible, the literal translations of the, of the Bible are Tyndale's work, a, a good portion of it. You'll read through it and you'll see this. Um, he's the one that, that wrote, Let There Be Light. You know, now, now God... Is the source of that. God's the source of all Scripture. Um, but in Hebrew, you know, you had the words in Hebrew, but Tyndale, he knew English, and he knew the beauty of the language, and he's the one that penned, let there be light. Now, we know that. We're familiar with it. Fight the good fight. That's Tyndale. 
You are the salt of the earth. That's Tyndale. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's Tyndale's translation. Um, Knock and it shall be opened. Again, that's Tyndale. Um, The King James Version Bible, I think over 80% of it was Tyndale's translations. So eventually when they did produce the Bible and made it available to, and it was the authorized version by the church, it was, most of it was Tyndale's work. Most of it, when they translated, Tyndale had done such a good job that it, 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 it stuck. But because of this, because of what he did, he was eventually arrested and jailed. Here's a picture of his martyrdom in 1536. He was jailed in 1535. He was in prison for about a year and a half, and then he was convicted of heresy by the church. Uh, a very, very sad way that, that his life ended was um, the church leaders and, and the political leaders were looking for him constantly. And so they sent a, a, a criminal from England to go find him where he was hiding out in Germany and befriend him, build his trust, get to know him, dine with him. Um, and, and over time, Tyndale trusted this man who eventually betrayed him. He just met him in order to um, betray him. And so one day he betrays him, gets him shipped back, and then, and then eventually... Tyndale was convicted of heresy. He's executed by strangulation because he was a priest. They, they would strangle the priests. And so he was strangled first, and then his body was burned at the stake. And so you can read uh, some of these things. There's a, if you want to learn about some of the martyrs of the church, you can read about it in Fox's book of the martyrs. And real, uh, you can read about the earliest martyrs from the days of the apostles even. And so, but his final words spoken while on the stake with a loud voice are these words at the bottom of the screen. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. This is what he's crying out. Open the eyes of the king. His own process, though, of living a convinced life was heavily influenced by a bunch of his contemporaries, Martin Luther, other reformers. But for Tyndale, the thing that made all the difference was once he studied the scriptures for himself, Once he was exposed to the content of the Bible, he knew that this had to be made available and understandable for it to have an impact on people. And so when Tyndale died, there were already two English um, Bibles circulating um, in England, most of which Tyndale had worked out the translations for. So two Bibles began circulating by the time of his death. And then when one version was finally presented to King Henry, uh, the bishops poured it over and they confirmed, man, this is pretty accurate. It's trustworthy. It's a good translation. So within a year, King Henry authorized that the Bibles actually be printed and circulated among the people. King Henry did this. And King Henry made sure that the, that the Bibles were inscribed with these words, set forth with the king's most gracious license. So within two years of of Tyndale's death, English Bibles were now displayed and available in every church throughout England. And this was really an answer to Tyndale's dying prayer. He prayed, Lord, open the eyes of the king and, and look at what happened. His conviction is still making an impact. His conviction of this needs to get into people's hands and into a language they understand and can hear, that's still making an impact. Think about your own life. No doubt there have been some major turning points for you when your head beliefs 
we're driven deep into hard convictions. For me, um, one of my convictions is that I want people to hear God's word without churchy barriers. I want people to understand what God has to say without barriers that we as a church could put up. And so whenever we spot a barrier, we work hard to remove those barriers. And also here at OCC, some of our you know, major concerns or convictions is that evangelism, like sharing Jesus with people who don't yet know him, would be right at the center of what we do. It would be the centerpiece of, of how we worship, of how when we gather that we would do it in a way that makes sense to, to people who are still in the process. That our small groups would be a place where people could, could process with others, but they don't have to have everything all nailed down, but they can be in the process of that. That our events would, would be geared and, and that you would feel comfortable to invite guests who don't yet know Jesus. This is a conviction of ours. But getting serious about convictions has been a process for our church, for me personally, for you, for all of us, con- convictions develop in this way. They develop through experience. We're finally going to get to this part, in case you're wondering. Convictions develop through experience. This is a statement from Paul that was part of the passage we looked at last week. I want to look at this again. Paul writes to Timothy, this is 2 Timothy 1.12. He writes, He's basically saying, Paul's saying, I've been appointed by God to preach and to start churches. And then he says this in verse 12. This is why, or which is why I suffer as I do. He's saying, because God appointed me to preach. God has appointed me to start churches and to preach, to herald this message, which is why I suffer as I do. But he says this, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. It's like, I'm not ashamed of the suffering. I'm not ashamed of what I'm enduring. And I'm convinced, he says, that, he, God, is able to guard what has been to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul, he's convinced because he's seen God come through over and over. That's why he says, I'm willing to suffer. Literally, suffering in this context is painful experiences. I'm willing to suffer. This shows something important about convictions. To build lasting beliefs, they must become real through experience. You, your, your heart convictions are, are those things that you've experienced. And you say, this stuff is really true. There's a lot of things that we think that, that you're not going to stake your life on yet. But the word suffer here in this passage, it's, it's really interesting. It, it means this. The root of it is this, to be affected, to feel, to have a sensible experience to undergo. It can be, honestly, it's a neutral word. It can mean pleasant experiences or painful experiences. In a bad sense, it means misfortune, it means suffering, undergoing evil, affliction. This is the meaning in this verse. It's painful experience is what Paul's writing about. But in a good sense, it can mean pleasant experience. You can actually suffer in a good way. There can be a, a pleasant side of suffering that we can have. Paul is saying here that he's willing to go through the painful experiences because of his commitment to Christ since God has come through so often. And since God has come through so often, it's made his suffering also pleasant. It's painful and pleasant for Paul because he's seen God come through. And so he's kind of saying, I've, ta- I've taken the pain. I've took the pain. And again, I found out that God is faithful. And we make decisions based on our convictions because, and even, even if our convictions cause us to go against something, go against the grain of what other people are doing, 
if you have if you have convictions, then you'll go against the grain of the people around you, the culture around you. One high school student, he goes with the crowd and he parties because he thinks that acceptance and fitting in is the most important thing. It's going to get them what they want. Another person has a different perspective and gives up acceptance because that person's convinced of how damaging it will be if they participate in the way that the crowd is moving. That's their convictions. All of us live by our convictions. It's crucial that we develop the right convictions. We make decisions about who we're going to marry. That's going to impact you. You decide about your career, where you're going to live, what you're going to put in your schedule. Those things are going to impact you. It's going to impact the people connected to you. Over time, we find out if we chose the right convictions. It will play out. Usually, though, it takes years to know, which is kind of scary, I think. But Jesus told us, that building our lives on the rock-solid foundation of the Scripture is the best thing to do. And so as Christ followers, for those of you that are Christ followers, aim to build your convictions on the Bible. Aim to build your convictions on what God says in Scripture. And there's a process for getting convinced of the right things. Here's what it looks like. We go from content plus courage. That equals conviction. Content plus courage equals conviction. Content is this. You get into the Scripture. You begin to read it, not just, not just hear it alone, but you begin to read it for yourself. You find out what God has to say about real life. You begin the process of personally investigating the Bible. This is a really difficult habit to build, though, isn't it? You can, you can nod your head if you can, you know. It's tough. It's tough to read the Scripture. It's tough to stay faithful to digging into the Scripture for yourself. But when you start reading the content, when you get into the content, you start asking God to speak to you through it, He does. He speaks to you through it. But then you add to that courage, because the next part in developing convictions is not just getting the right content, but it's having the courage to exercise faith. You trust the God who is really there to be good to you, despite what the consequences of obedience might look like. In the short term, it may appear crazy to obey God. You read some content in the Bible and you're like, ooh, that's scary. In the short term, it may seem scary to have the courage to put that stuff into practice about life, about relationships, about resources like money, time, about our words. But in the long term, God's word and God's ways prove to be true. And so a person who has the content and then takes the step, the courageous step of faith to obey it, that builds conviction. That's what builds a life of convictions. The right content, courageous steps equals conviction. Over time, you see God come through and provide. And then you're even more convinced. Every time you see it, you're like, wow, I can really trust God. I'm going to take another step. I'm going to get into more of the content. I'm going to take another courageous step forward. Once you experience the benefits of of hearing God speak and seeing Him come, come through, you're convinced, I need to get into this every day. I need to get into the Scripture daily. Over the course of your life, convictions grow stronger as you keep facing reality according to God. They get deeper and deeper lodged into who we are. And in 2 Timothy 3, if you move ahead a couple chapters, you you should read the, the letter that Paul writes to Timothy. It's about convictions. He writes this in verse 14. He says, But as for you, and we looked at this last week as well, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. He's saying, 
Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He points him to two key you know, sources to keep learning reality according to God. He points him to the Bible, number one. We need to keep digging into the Bible. This is what this is what we're saying here. Dig into the Bible. Get into the content. Let God speak to you. Thank God we have access to the Bible in our own language. You know, I can try to, to write my own plan and create my own reality. You can try that too. Create your own reality in life. But all of the time I discover that God does not seem to operate in the world according to my reality. He operates in this world according to His reality. He does what he wants to. And he's, he's made this world. So I, I need to understand what's God's reality. What does God say in the Bible? And then secondly, leaders who live out God's word. This is another source to learn reality. There are people in your life who are living out God's word and trying to invest in you, pour time into you. Paul does, does this in Timothy's life. Timothy, he was this prodigy of Paul. He'd been taught by Paul. But then also Timothy, he'd been taught and encouraged by his mother, his grandmother. And so that's why he says in verse 15, from childhood, you've been acquainted with these writings. But he learned these things. And, and you need to put, and I need to put the things into practice that we learn from the Bible and from leaders that are in our lives. We need to put things into practice. If you've never put the things that you learn here on Sundays, just as one example, into practice, then you never really get convinced because... You don't experience the reality of seeing God come through. It's one thing to get the content, but if you never have the courage to take the step of obedience, then you never see God come through. You don't develop the convictions. You live an unconvinced life. A weak life spiritually. Now, we all deal with weakness, but God actually invites us to hand our weakness over to Him and to gain strength. He invites, God invites us to learn from Him. Through these different sources, God is speaking to us. Through the Bible, through our leaders, but God invites us to learn from Him. He invites us to become people who draw close to Him and experience the benefits. We see these words from the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament prophet to God's people. Look at these words in Isaiah 48:17. It's on God's heart that we do not wander off to do life on our own. Look at what he says. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. This is God's desire. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. It's like, get into the content. Oh, that you had done this. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. This is what he wants. He invites us to learn from him. Sadly, the history of God's people was cyclical. They would draw close to God, but then they'd get complacent. They'd rebel. They'd be disciplined. And then God would invite them back. And then this cycle would happen again. They'd draw close to God. They'd get complacent. They'd rebel. And they'd be disciplined. And God invites them back. There's this cycle you read in the Bible of people, God's people. Well, the same is true of us. God invites us, though, to learn from Him. Jesus said something very similar in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. 
meaning those of us whose lives are just loaded down, and that's most of us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. If you're loaded down, come to him. I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. This is an invitation to connect with Jesus. Learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You and I, we can find rest for our souls. And that is encouraging. That's what I need. I can trade the heavy burdens that I carry in life, the painful experiences that I, that I carry, and in Him, I, I, He can build something new. Convictions grow out of surrendered lives. The lives of people who get into God's Word and have the courage to live it out. I want to end with this letter. This is a letter from William Tyndale. He wrote this letter from, from the castle where he was being imprisoned. And this is the final things that we have from Tyndale. He's awaiting his execution. He was arrested in May of 1535. And at this point, it's September. And it's starting to get really cold. And he's in this prison cell. And he's cold. And he's alone. And this letter gets right to the heart of this morning's message. And really sums up really well William Tyndale's life. Look at this letter. He writes this to the overseer of the, of the, of the prison. He says, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has. Because he went into prison, they took all his belongings, right? So he's saying, you know, can I get from the commissary all these things? A warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head, and I'm afflicted by a perpetual katara. Qatar. This is an infection of the lungs, a really bad cold, which is much, much increased in this cell. Then he says, a warmer coat also for which, for this, which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirt is also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of a thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Now look at this next. But most of all. Now this is the amazing part that demonstrates his convictions once again. After everything he has just asked for, for himself. But most of all, I beg your clemency to be, to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in study. I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. And then he signs his name. We don't know if these requests were ever granted. He did stay through the winter. In August of the next year, he was condemned by the church. Then October 6th, he was strangled, consumed by fire. But just think about what we have access to in the Bible. Just think about his life, the Word of God in our own language. Let's get into the content. We have to do that for ourselves, though. And we have to have the courage to obey and become people of deep conviction. It honors the Lord when we do. And it honors the lives of faithful 
men and women who have sacrificed themselves for what they believe God said is important. And so dig in. Dig in for yourself. I want to invite our, our worship team to come back up and join me on the stage and ask our ushers to prepare to receive the offering this morning. And when we pass the offering baskets around, if you wouldn't mind, uh, finish filling this out and dropping this in the basket. A couple of next steps you see on the back of your listening guide or a connection card. You can just scan these three next steps here. Um, a verse to memorize. The second thing there is <clears throat> if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and you're ready to do that, we would love to help you nail that down. If, if you're ready to move from a head-level relationship with Jesus into a heart-level relationship with Jesus, we'd love to help you do that. You can check that on the back of your connection card. We'll follow up with you and help you um, get some of your questions answered and, and clarify that with you. And the last thing is just commit to keep investigating who God is. Build a bedrock for your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your, for your great love. And Lord, as we get into your word, we experience you. It's not just that we learn about you, but we can know you. We can experience you. We can walk with you. We can talk with you. Lord, I thank you for the, the life of William Tyndale. Thank you for the way that his life and his efforts inspire us to to follow you, to take you seriously. Lord, none of us here need to, um, we really shouldn't aim to live lives of conviction so that we would be people who um, get all the credit. But Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to you in the little things, that we'd have convictions for the things that are on our plate right now for the things that you say matter, or for the people in our lives, that we treat them well, that we clear up relationships, that we serve people, that we love people, that we be generous, that we not depend on our own strength, but we depend on you each day. Lord, that we pray. God, in, in, the, in the little things, Lord, help us to be faithful, to build these convictions, Lord. And, and if in this room there are people that you are stirring to do other things, Lord, I pray that those things would be rooted in Scripture and not in an effort for, for selfish gain, for making a name for ourselves, but really to honor you, Lord Jesus, and for what you've done. May you really work through us as, as a group, Lord. Thank you for the team you've assembled here. Help us to work together for your kingdom. Pray your blessing over our offering we're about to receive. Would you bless it, use it, Lord, to further your kingdom in this area, Lord? Help us to be faithful to steward it to the things that you have us involved in, Lord, for the people you have us involved in and supporting, Lord. Thank you for those that are giving in this congregation. I pray you'd bless them, continue to provide, Lord. Help us to be faithful in this area. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.